As we're diving into God's word together, though, uh, I want us to take some time this morning to open back up to 1 Peter today. We are in a study in 1 Peter talking about living life as exiles. We recognize that because Jesus has saved us, if, if you're here today, by the way, and you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, in other words, you've put your trust in him, you've, uh, you've turned from following yourself to turn to following Jesus, and, and you've been saved, and that means that you're no longer just an American citizen. More than that, you're actually a part of the kingdom of God. Your primary citizenship is not here on earth. Your primary citizenship is in God's kingdom as one of his children, as one of his followers. And so what we see is that makes us live as exiles here on earth. We're going to look at life differently than people who aren't a part of the kingdom of God. We're going to do things differently. Our priorities are going to be different. And so the first few weeks that we've looked at this in First Peter, we've been seeing Peter giving us an anchor to hold on to. He's been pointing us in the first part of this chapter to the living hope that we have in Christ. We saw last week how unbelievably incredible this hope is that we have that's guarded and protected for us that will never fade, never diminish, never go away. This hope that one day we're going to be able to be with Jesus, we're going to be in his presence forever, and one day, even beyond that, he's going to come back and he's going to set everything right that's wrong with the earth. And we look forward to that day. So as we're looking forward to that day, with that hope as our anchor, Peter's now shifting into the hard stuff. See, it's been easy to get excited about what we've seen so far because we have this living hope, and we should, by the way. We should be excited about the living hope that we have in Christ. But now as we're diving in, the next couple of weeks, what we're going to start seeing is what is our response to the hope that God's given us? With these anchors deeply set, he's going to really start challenging us and dig deep into what all we need to be and do and how we're to react. Now, I'll remind you that when we talked about kind of in the introductory message where we started introducing these concepts, what Peter's not going to tell us is circle the wagons and just hunker down until Jesus gets back and, and kind of stay on your own and isolate yourselves and don't really you know, get out there too much or anything like that. Instead, even as we're going to dive in this morning, we're going to be seeing that a part of our response is living well as ambassadors for Christ in this world. Like we've mentioned before, I've told you about, you know, if you've ever had any friends who are from an international area or maybe even friends from a different part of the country that's known for a particular kind of food or something like that. Like we had friends who were from Texas and they used to make a brisket every uh, Sunday afternoon. Instead of doing a roast like a lot of us would do here, they did a brisket. And man, that was good eating, right? Because even though they weren't in Texas anymore, they wanted to give you a taste of home. And in the same kind of way, what God has called us to do is to give a taste of home, to help people to see who God is and what life is like in the kingdom, okay? By the way, if you're with us this morning, if you're watching us online, or if you're here in person this morning, and you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, and you're trying to figure out who Jesus is and, and what all this is about, we're really glad that you're here with us today. And we hope that as we talk about the hope that we have in Christ, we hope that that will encourage you to follow him and to honor him and know him like we do, okay? We're not better than anybody else. We've just had the privilege of coming to know who Jesus is, and it causes us to live differently. So as we look at that this morning, that's really what we're going to start to see, is what it looks like for us to live differently in light of the hope that we have, Okay? So let's start by diving in at verse 13. By the way, you'll notice that this is our response, part one. 
Um, we're going to do this in two different parts. We're going to go 13 to 21 this week, and then we're going to finish out the rest of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, Lord willing, next week together, okay? So this is the first part of our response. Remember, anytime you see there in verse 13, it says, therefore, with your minds ready for action. Remember, anytime you see the word therefore, you got to think, what's the therefore, therefore, okay? Therefore is a word that the Bible uses to always remind us to go back and look at what we've just seen. So again, we've just seen that we have this incredible hope that something that was prophesied for a thousand years or more, and so we are the recipients of this hope and this salvation that God's offered. So therefore, in light of that, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now let's stop right there and just deal with verse 13. He's hitting us right out of the gate. The verse here is set your hope. It has an idea of intentionality with it. The other words describe what that setting of our hope looks like. So our response begins with where we left off last week, setting our hope on the inheritance that's coming, not on anything that may or may not happen in this life. Now, as we've said, though, that doesn't mean that we're going to wait passively for Christ's return. We aren't called to hide or just waste time. Instead, he said that our minds are to be ready for action. The word here, actually more literally translated, is to gird up your loins, okay? Which is a really weird phrase to use in 2022. But the idea is back in those days, men would wear a robe, they would wear a tunic, right? And it was kind of a long dress almost. And if you were going to do any kind of work, if you were going to go fight, if you had to run for some reason, you needed to take the bottom of that thing and tuck it into your belt, right? So that you could actually have the freedom and ability to move. So what he's saying is you want to gird up the loins of your mind, ready for action. The Christian life is not passive. How many of you have ever had to clean the house before mom got home? Okay. Yeah. You know what that's like, right? You, you may not know exactly when she's going to be home, but it's going to be this afternoon. So I need the bed stripped. I need laundry done. Somebody's got to hit the dishes. Somebody's got to hit the vacuum. We need to get this place back in order, right? You knew she was coming, so you had to get yourself in gear, get everything straightened back up. Or, or this time of year, think about going on vacation. You know, you got that lead up to vacation where you're trying to get everything nailed down at work, trying to make sure you got all this done, you got everything packed. You know, uh, Mike says the, the hardest part of any trip is the first tw- 10 feet out of the driveway. Um, you know, where you got to, you just, once you can get out the driveway, you can go. But it's all of that lead up. You've got your mind ready to get ready to go. In those moments, you've set your mind ready for action because you know you don't have long to do what needs to be done. I think is either Robert Moffat or Amy Carmichael. We won't have this quote up there. It depends on who you ask. But one of them said, we have all eternity in which to celebrate our victories, but only one short hour before sunset in which to win them. You realize there's things we can't do in heaven? I can't share the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus in heaven. I can't obey when it's difficult when I'm in heaven. There are ways that I can honor Christ now that I will never have the opportunity to do so again. And we have one fleeting hour before sunset in which to win it. So we need to have our minds ready for action. Whatever that is, think about it. How many of you guys like watching tennis? Right, that's what I thought. I don't like watching it either. Um, it's a great Sunday afternoon thing to put on in the background because they talk kind of quiet, you know, and it's usually, uh, yeah, almost like golf. I'm sorry, I just, I can't get there. I just, but if you know, what, what's, that, what's that one guy's job? You know what I'm talking about? Ball boy, right? He sits there like this the entire match. And all of a sudden he takes off across this, grabs it, runs back, right? He's got his mind ready for action. He's ready. So the he's needed, he's ready to go. I know some of you are like, 
I have never seen a pastor do that, and I never want to see that again. Yeah, I get it. That's what's the idea here. I have my mind ready for action. Whatever Jesus calls, whenever, whatever it looks like, whatever it costs, whatever it takes, yes is the answer. I've heard somebody saying it this way, putting your yes on the table and let God put it on the map. God, yes, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. In advance, the answer is yes. Set your mind ready for action. Now, this readiness for action is coupled with a call to live sober-minded or to have a disciplined thought life. Here's how one commentator explains this phrase. (sighs) That was harder than I thought it was. Okay, I gotta breathe. Okay. Living sober-minded is this. This is how this one commentator, Thomas Schreiner, said it this way. Peter was not merely saying that believers should refrain from drunkenness. There's a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God that is anesthetized by the attractions of this world. When people are allowed into such drowsiness, they lose their sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. Now, guys, we could stop there. See, living sober-mindedly is recognizing that this world and its accoutrements and all the gadgets and all the dings and all the noise, and it's not just, don't just blame smartphones and social media. It's been this way forever. We've always been distractible. We've always had an easy time getting our mind on what's going on in this life because this feels so urgent. This feels so real. Where there's moments when heaven feels so far away that we let our minds get dull to the reality of God. So living sober-minded, this wasn't, I wasn't going to go there. All right, how many, how many of you guys remember the movie Jungle Book? You guys remember Jungle Book? You remember Ka the snake? You remember she sits there, or he, depending on which version you're watching, and starts talking to Mowgli, and as she's talking to Mowgli, she starts to hypnotize him, and he lulls into sleep. That's what he's talking about here. The blogs podcasts, the news, social media, wherever you get your information. Satan is working behind the scenes in all of these things to get our minds off of Christ. So we need to be sober-minded. We need to be aware of that, and we need to discipline our thought lives. We need to discipline what we put in our minds. We need to discipline how we spend our time. We need to be disciplined and set our hope on Christ and what's coming when he's revealed. Now, we're going to return to that phrase, by the way, in chapters 4 and chapter 5, but for now, let's acknowledge that that there is a danger here. So, as we set our hope fully on Christ's return, we ready our minds for action, we take a sober look at life, not getting lulled into a false sense of security. By the way, I know I've had multiple conversations over the last few days with people have said about the price of gas, the price of food, the price of this. I'm right there, man. What if... What if God's doing this on purpose? For the record, I think he is, no matter what his purpose may be. It's God. But what if his purpose is to keep us from getting too comfortable here? You see, when the gospel begins to spread in a region, it doesn't usually spread among the wealthy first. It spreads among those who recognize they have a need, to recognize that things aren't okay. What if God allowed our nation to go through a depression like we have never seen 
so that people would acknowledge their need for Christ. Maybe God's trying to afflict us, to help us, to set our hope on him. Now, having addressed our mindset, he's going to shift to talking about our actions, okay? Here's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, is is looking at two different responses, two different parts of this response to this hope that we have, that we're setting our minds on, recognizing life is not about success in this life. Life is about living for Christ and knowing that one day he's coming back, one day I'm going to be with him, trusting and resting in that. So then, how do I live today? The first thing that we're going to see is that we're going to live with holy conduct. Read verses 14 through 16 with me. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I'm holy. Guys, this is a heavy passage of Scripture. It's very easy for us to judge ourselves off of how other people are doing. Well, I don't do this. I, I go to church more than that person does. I don't, I don't talk like they do. I don't drink like they do. I don't smoke like I don't, whatever your thing is. So I must be okay. What's the standard here? God. The holiness of God is the standard for our conduct. That's a big deal. Now, do you remember when we talked about the sanctifying work of the Spirit back in chapter 1, verse 2, a couple weeks ago? We said that when we came to Christ, we were born again and welcomed into his kingdom, and the Holy Spirit set us apart. And if you remember, we said that 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 idea of sanctification is set apart from something and set apart to something. This idea of holiness is the same concept. In fact, it's the same word family in Greek. We're getting that idea here. We're set apart from sin in the kingdom of darkness, and we're set apart to righteousness or holiness in the kingdom of God. We, we see that idea again here. The, the negative side or, or the kind of the putting off is in verse 14. Don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. And then the positive is down to verse 15. See, before we came to Christ, we live without taking God's desires into account. It, and the Bible describes it as ignorance. You don't know what you don't know. Apart from a relationship with Christ, you don't understand that there is a God out there who has a plan and a purpose for the world. And it looks dramatically different than what you think it does. It looks dramatically different than your intentions and your desires. Peter here says that that way of living is ignorant. It's living life without the knowledge and understanding of who God is and what God's called us to be. And again, that's how the rest of the world lives without Christ, and that's how we get into trouble if we're not careful. Now that we're citizens of God's kingdom, he's given us a new standard to live up to, and that standard is his own holiness. So what does it mean to be holy? Well, in this context, the word holy has some different nuances depending on where it happens in Scripture. But in this context, the idea of holiness is to be set apart from evil and to righteousness. In other words, when it says that God is holy, that means that there is nothing wrong with God. There is nothing unjust. There is nothing morally impure. There is nothing out of sorts. God is completely holy. In other words, there is no unrighteousness. There's no wickedness. There's no evil. There's no bad decisions. There's none of that because God is holy, okay? So that's the idea of holiness is that God is perfect morally. Mary Poppins may have thought that she was practically perfect in every way, but God actually is, 
God truly is holy. Now, there's other aspects of God's holiness that are a little bit different that talk about the fact that he's different than everything else in all of creation. That's part of God's holiness. He's above everything else. There's nothing else that's ever been made that is anywhere close to being in the same realm as God. He's in a totally different league, okay? So the holiness here, though, is talking about that righteousness, that the fact that what God does is always the right thing at the right time in the right way for the right motives, okay? So he's completely set apart from evil. By the way, can you even imagine that? Can you imagine what it would be like to never think the wrong thing, never do the wrong thing, to always do the right thing, to never have a motive that was less than pure, to always be fully engaged with him? Man, wouldn't that be awesome? Look forward to the day we get there. We're not going to get that life and get that way in our lives, but we're to strive for it. You're never going to be perfect in this life, but that's the goal. That's what we're striving for. That's what we're living for. Now, as we look at that, by the way, this also means that we can't divide our lives into parts. See, he said that we're to be holy in all of our conduct. That doesn't mean that we're to be holy from about. 10.50 to about 12.30 every Sunday morning, right? It doesn't mean that I can be holy in, in what I give to the church, but the rest of the money is mine. I can be holy in that I spend some time at church, and I even volunteer, and I came down for that work day, or I'm planning on going to the men's dinner. or Holy in all our conduct, everything we do. That's not how it works. We can't divide it into parts. The Bible teaches that holiness should touch every aspect of our lives, even down to what and how we eat and drink. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Now, let me give you some context there. Doing everything for the glory of God, what they're saying is in those days, if you were buying meat that, had been, uh, that you didn't grow yourself, okay, if you didn't raise the meat and butcher it yourself, If you bought it, it had been sacrificed to an idol at some point. They'd offered it to an idol, and then they sell it in the marketplace. There were people at Corinth who said, you know what? I used to be a part of that, and I can't eat that meat because it takes me back there. It's kind of like a recovering alcoholic who's gone back to a bar. I can't go back there because of what it used to mean to me. So in the same kind of way, these Christians said, I got saved, and I can't be a part of that idol worship, so I can't eat that stuff. Well, What Paul said was, there's nothing that happens there because idols aren't real. Yeah, sometimes there are demonic forces at work behind idolatry, but the idol itself, nothing happens to that meat when they offer it. That's not a real God. And so you're free to eat it if your conscience can do it. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If you don't eat it, you don't eat because you want to give God honor and glory and not go back to idolatry. If you do eat it, you receive it as a blessing from God to give you something wonderful to eat. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now listen, if it comes down to whether or not I eat meat, if I can honor and glorify God by my eating, then that means every aspect of my life. What I watch what I say, how I spend my free time, how I use my resources, how I take care of the stuff that God's entrusted to me because I'm a steward, I don't own anything. I need to be living with holy conduct in everything. 
Now, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he showed how important this was when we're like the believers in 1 Peter who were suffering persecution for following Jesus. In other words, they were losing business, they were losing family, they were losing friends, and before too much longer, we're actually going to start losing their lives for following Jesus. And so here's what Jesus said about that. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say evil every kind of evil against you because of me, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, Peter's gonna pick up this theme in chapter two and three, but keep in mind that Jesus said, it's blessed to suffer because of righteousness. Now, there's a difference between suffering because of righteousness and suffering because you're a jerk, okay? If everybody hates you because all you do is post mean stuff all the time, you're not suffering for Jesus. Now, if people get mad at you because you point to the truth of the gospel and you tr- point to the truth of God's word, that's on them. But if you're a jerk about it, that's on you, okay? Or if you're just weird. I mean, can we be honest that sometimes we're just weird? I, like, listen, the weirdest place I have ever been was seminary, okay? When I looked around the room at all of these guys who were training to become pastors, there's a part of me that gets kind of concerned (laughs) because I'm one of them. I'm really weird. But if people make fun of me because I'm weird, that's just life. Blessed if persecuted, though, because of my holy conduct. Because if I tell my boss, I'm not going to lie on that report, and I lose my job because of that. If because... I tell my spouse, we're not going to watch that. We're not going to do that. And they get angry at me. Because if I stand for Christ and say, I'm not going to go to that wedding, I love you more than you know, but I can't support it. If we live with holy conduct, we're blessed if we're persecuted. Now, it's interesting, by the way, too. Did you see that even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is already saying that there's this reward waiting for us? So Peter's just picking up the same thing that Jesus had already been teaching. Peter's just, just starting off where, where Peter, or excuse me, where, where Jesus always was. In fact, in verse, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. See, guys, that's the thing. We can't just circle the wagons and you know, form some kind of commune. Let's all go buy a bunch of land out in Floyd and let's move out there together and let's shut the doors and let's not, not, not let the kids watch anything or, or ever be exposed to anybody. I mean, Floyd's great. Like, it's beautiful out there. I'm cool with that. But, but if we did that and used that as a base for us to go into the world and, and take the gospel, that's fantastic. But we can't just sit there and watch the rest of the world go to hell. That's not Okay. We have to live in such a way that we honor Christ wherever we are. That's who he's called us to be, to let our light shine before men. Because eventually when when God shows up, they'll have to give him honor and glory and say, you know what, I didn't like that guy when he said that, but he was right. I didn't understand why he did that, but now that I see Jesus as he is, I see what he was doing. We live with holy conduct even as we live as exiles. How are you doing with this, by the way? If we took the commands that the Bible gives us and put them next to the way you thought or reacted or acted this week, 
how well would they line up? Is God glorified through the way that you treat your kids or do your job or use your free time? Are there aspects of your life you don't want anyone to know about because you'd be ashamed? Set your hope on what's coming in Christ. Get your mind ready to obey. Take a sober look at what you're doing. and Live with holy conduct. Okay? By the way, if you're like, Sean, I don't know what's right. I don't know what's wrong. This. Okay? It's not what I say. It's not some creed that I come up with. It's what God says in his word. If you're looking for a good place to start, like if, if you're like, Sean, I really don't know what's right and what's wrong and how to get started in this. Um, we just finished a series of the Gospel of John. John's great at outlining a lot of things about Jesus. But I tell you where I would actually go first. Those verses that I was just quoting came from Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus goes through what's called the Sermon on the Mount where he sat down and outlined kind of what life looks like if you're a citizen of his kingdom, who you're supposed to be, how you're supposed to respond. Now, this is not how you come into the kingdom. You can't be good enough to earn your spot in the kingdom of God. See, the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every single one of us has failed, and not a a single one of us deserves to be right with God. But he loved us so much that he died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead to give us his life. So if we've been saved through his death and his burial and his resurrection for us, then this is how we're supposed to live it out. So like I said, Matthew 5 through 7 is a great section of scripture that talks about now that you're a part of the kingdom, through what Jesus has done, this is how you live. Once you're saved, you ought to live like it, okay? So the first part is we're setting our hope on the the future that's coming. We're living sober-minded by holy conduct. Then the second thing that Peter's gonna call us to do is to live with reverent fear. Live with reverent fear. Read verse 17 with me. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you're to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time as living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, here in verse 17, we have this this interesting statement. Uh, Our translation reads, conduct yourselves in reverence. Other translations use the word fear. I prefer actually the, the 1984 NIV that put the two together and said, live your life in reverent fear. Conduct yourselves with reverent fear. See, when we think about our relationship with Christ, it's very, we don't want to live in abject terror, right? We don't want to to cower and be afraid and just constantly be overwhelmed and to the point where we're paralyzed and don't want to do anything. Some of you, unfortunately, you had a father who was that way. He was an angry man, and you could never please him. And so when you think of God, there's a part of you that's scared to death of God because you only saw your dad that way, and that's colored the way that you look at God. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about here. But at the same time, I I, I think reverence sometimes softens it too much, especially in our culture because we don't get reverence. 
The closest we've seen is the fascination with the Queen's Jubilee, right? You know, everybody's excited about the Queen and, you know, the, all the pomp and circumstance and things like that. But, you know, even, what was it, Harry and Meghan got booed because of everything that they've done. You know, there's not even reverence and decorum at the Queen's Jubilee. Some of you are like, I have no idea what any of that means. Great, don't even look at it. We fought a whole war, so we don't have to care about what happens there. And so... But now, look again at the, the context here. When he's talking about this reverent fear... He's talking about that, that sober-mindedness, this awareness of who God is, okay? Look at the context. Verse, four, or excuse me, verse 17 again. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work. Now, there's a couple possibilities of, of different judgment times that, that are being referred to here. There's one judgment at the very end where we know that God is going to take the books that have everything written that everybody's ever done, and then there's the Lamb's Book of Life. And if, if, at, the, if at that judgment, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, in other words, you're in the kingdom, you've been saved by Jesus and what he's done, then what happened here is covered and atoned for by Christ, and you're not judged by that. It could be that that's what's in view, but it's actually more likely that he's talking about a, a different view or a different judgment that is one that Christians will actually go through. We're not condemned because Jesus has already settled that. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're here today and you're saved by Christ and what he's done, you will stand before God pure, holy, and, and able to enjoy heaven with him forever. However, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about a different judgment that all of us who are believers will actually stand before God for. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, this is not a judgment about eternal life or eternal condemnation. Instead, this is a judgment where those of us who have been saved will stand before God and all of our works, it goes on to say, will be tried by fire. In other words... Everything that we've done for Christ, everything we've done that's God-honoring, that's of eternal value, all those victories we talked about celebrating, those things, it says, are, are like gold and silver and precious stones. Everything we've done for ourselves, all the sin, all the wasted opportunities, all of those things are like wood, hay, and stubble. And we're going to stand before God, and he's going to put a match to it. And when he puts a match to it, all of that garbage that, that I've done for myself, all of my selfishness, all of my pride, all of my laziness, all of my fear, all of that stuff is going to be consumed. And it says whatever's left we'll receive back as a reward. Now, I don't fully understand everything about how this works. I, I don't. But that ought to cause us to have a little bit more fear, a little bit more reverence, when I smart off, can I be transparent? My whole family saw it yesterday, so I got frustrated yesterday. I got frustrated, and I slammed a door loudly. I know, a preacher, can you imagine? I told you. You know, one day, God's going to set a match to that. How many slam doors? How many of those little digs where you set it, you knew it, you knew what you were doing? How many of those mornings where I rolled over instead of getting up and spending time with God? Now, again, I, 
If I died right now, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt because of what Jesus has done, I'd be able to go to his presence and enjoy it forever. But how much of my life is going to be wood, hay, and stubble that he has to put a match to? Living with reverent fear is living with the understanding that at some point I'm going to stand before God and be called to task for how I've spent. There was a young pastor one time who had studied under Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the great preachers in the English language. And he had gotten appointed out to this little country church out in the middle of nowhere that had like 30 people, while Spurgeon was literally preaching to thousands every week. He wrote back to Spurgeon and was bemoaning the size of his congregation and all the, that he'd gone through. And Spurgeon was quick to remind him that he's going to have to stand before God and give an account for every single soul that sat under his teaching. So he said, if I were you, I wouldn't be in too big of a hurry. Living with reverent fear is understanding that God is the judge. And yes, I have this relationship with him through Christ that can never be taken away, that can never be diminished, that can never be challenged because of what Jesus has done. But how I live today matters. Living with reverent fear. Now, that's what the Bible has said has always been the basis for life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the book of Proverbs has told us, this is not new information. The fear of the Lord is where wisdom starts. So I don't care how popular an author is, how many people have watched their TED Talks or listened to their podcast or watched their, you know, whatever. If they don't start with the fear of the Lord, then they're missing the very basis of wisdom. You got to be real careful what you understand from them. And in the same kind of way, if you and I are not basing our lives and our decisions and every moment off of the fear of the Lord, then we're missing it. Okay? By the way, what's this kind of fear look like? Give you a fun example. Um, some of us have had the privilege, Randy has gone with me and Gordon's gone with me. Uh, we've gone to Zimbabwe on mission trips. Now, let's be honest before I tell the story. For like six nights, we're camping, okay? We're, and we're roughing it. There, there's no running water in the village. You know, it, it is, it's pretty rustic out there. So for one night, we'll stay in a, a nice lodge at a, at a game park. Now, the game park we've typically gone to is a place called Antelope Park, um, it's ironic because they're known for breeding lions. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. But one of the things that they let you do is you could actually go for a walk with the lions. Randy, did you go for a walk with the lions? Randy is smarter than I am. I wanted to do it once. I, I went for a walk with these two lion cubs. They were brother and sister. They were like 15 to 18 months old. Lions aren't full grown until they're four, by the way. So he was a little bit bigger than a German shepherd, uh, just kind of big. But as we're walking along, you just have a stick and a lion. Now, if you've never been around lions, which I wouldn't have otherwise, they are just big cats. I mean, they really are. It was hot that day, and so as we're walking, they would just lay down, just plop. It's a lion. What are you going to do? So they told us, you know, we'll stop for a second, but if they don't get up, just keep going and the guides will get them up. But listen, you know, if they give you a command or something to get out of the way, go for it. That's, that's good. So the male lion had laid down. We kept walking. African men are very soft-spoken. Americans are really bad listeners, okay? So apparently the guide may have said something. I don't know. I didn't hear anything. All I know is I feel, um, and look down to see this juvenile lion 
having bumped me with his head as he walked past me. I don't know about you. That's a little too close to the pointy parts. (laughs) Right? In that moment, all of a sudden, you had a sense. If he wanted to do something, there's nothing you could do. The next day, we got to watch their big brothers eat, the full-grown male lions. They put you behind about a 12-foot chain-link fence, and there's about a big old pile of meat, like 10 feet inside the enclosure, and you put the camera right up to the, the fence. Got some really cool pictures. At one point, one of the lions got mad. He didn't like me taking pictures. So as he was sitting there, he was eating a piece of meat, and he was chuffing. He was going, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he turned and pounced at the fence. Now, he didn't, he didn't actually hit the fence, but it was so fast. I was, you know, sitting down at my camera like this. I hadn't even gotten up at all when he would have hit. There is so much power that as they're purring, it sounds like a Harley. You can feel it in your chest. You can hear their roar for miles. There's a fear when you're around a predator like that. There's a reverence. You're not just going to poke the thing with a stick and see what happens, right? By the way, I've never done the lion walk again. That was, one was good for me. Because it gave me this sense, if it wanted to, it could. Now, here's the thing. Some of you guys, you're already thinking that there's a quote from the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe where they ask, is Aslan the lion safe? Aslan is a, an allegory for Christ. Mr. Beaver responds and says, safe? No, but he is good. You realize that that when God declared his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, he said that the first words out of his mouth were that he's the Lord, compassionate and gracious, abounding in loving kindness. But right before that, he told Moses, I'm going to have to hide you in the rock because if you saw my face, you would die. You would literally drop dead because of the majesty and glory that you can't handle. This is the God we serve. The God who's able to take a den full of lions and stop their mouths and save his prophet when Daniel got thrown to them. And yet at the same time, the God who was also able to take that same lion or a lion similar to it and use it to kill a prophet who disobeyed. Some of you don't remember that story. Go back and look it up. This is the God who judges, and yet the God who extends grace. Because, see, this reverent fear is not just based off God's judgment. It's also based off of the price that was paid. That's what he goes on to talk about in verse 18. You know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. We live in reverent fear, yes, because one day God's going to try my works with fire, but also because look at what he's already done. Look at what he's already done. Redeem me from this empty, futile way of life. Look at the book of Ecclesiastes at some point when you've got time. When you live life without recognizing who God is, you find that life is meaningless. The word that's translated meaningless there, by the way, is the idea of vapor or smoke. You watch the dew burn off in the morning. You know, that steam you see rising as the sun hits the dew. 
He said, that's what life is apart from a relationship with God. Your life is a vapor. It's smoke. It's empty. It's meaningless apart from Christ. I don't care if you cure every form of cancer. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, you will die and go to hell. I don't say that with any kind of joy, by the way. I say that with sobriety, with fear, because I don't want that for you. I want you to know Jesus more than anything else. I want you to live with that reverent fear that recognizes who God is, that, that, that though my life was a vapor and empty and meaningless, yet he loved me so much that he would send his own son to spill his blood to pay for my sin, to pay for me slamming the door in frustration. Jesus hung on the cross for my anger. And it cost the precious blood of his son. By the way, you remember the picture here? The picture of this lamb that's unblemished and without spot was from the Passover. When God's people were getting ready to leave Egypt, there was one last plague that God was going to send. He was going to go through, and an angel was going to kill all of the firstborn throughout Egypt. And the only way that the angel would pass over your house is if you sacrificed a lamb and spilled its blood on the doorposts of your house, and it would save those who were inside. All of those lambs that were sacrificed time and time again for the Passover meal, all of that pointed to Christ, to the one who would ultimately be the precious lamb of God who would die in your place, the one who was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was revealed in these last times for you. And that through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in him. If God would make such a costly sacrifice to save me from my empty life, then how could I possibly keep on living like nothing has changed? In light of so great a salvation, I need to live in reverent fear. By the way, do you see how these two connect? If I have a reverent fear and understanding of who God is, then I'm going to be sober-minded about the way that I live. And that's going to cause me to want to live in holiness, to do what God tells me to do, to do what God tells me is right, and to not do the things that God says are wrong. There was a group of believers in the 1700s who understood what this looked like. It's a group of folks named the Moravians. Okay, that's a fun word. Uh, They're still around in different pockets. We would disagree with them theologically on some things, but what we wouldn't disagree with was their missionary zeal. Keep in mind, in those days, you didn't just grab a plane ticket and go anywhere. This is the 1700s we're talking about. And in the 1700s, they set up mission outposts in the Virgin Islands, in Greenland, in North America, South America, South Africa, and the island of Labrador. They went everywhere with the gospel. You know what their rallying cry was? Here's their rallying cry. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. Now, you and I can never pay Jesus back. Our sin debt is too great. We are too weak, too frail. But would to God that we would live in holy conduct and in reverent fear so that as we look back over our life, we could say, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes.
I want to give you just a minute to respond here. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just take a second and process some of the things we've talked about today. First off, are you lulled to sleep by this world? Like, when's the last time you really thought about Jesus' return? When's the last time you thought about the fact that you have to give an account to God for the way you lived, the way you acted, the way you responded? Are you living in holy conduct and reverent fear? Are you sober-minded, though? Maybe that's where you need to start and say, God, I need you to wake me back up. I've gotten way too comfortable with life here. I need you to sober me up to see life as it is, as it really is. Maybe there's a particular area that as we've gone through this that you've seen a lack of holiness. You've seen that there's something that you know that the Bible says is wrong or something you know that the Bible says is right that you're not doing. The proper response to that is what the Bible calls repentance. To let God's holiness and your sinfulness break your heart so that you turn from doing that thing to turn to honoring him. Maybe you've gotten too comfortable with the fact that Jesus saved you and you've forgotten the preciousness of what it took for you to be right with God. You're not living with reverent fear. Would you ask God to help you be mindful of these things? I want to give you just a moment to do business with God. I'm down front. If you need to talk with me, you can. If not, you can just uh, do business with God, and I'll close this in a moment with prayer. Father, we thank you first off that the precious blood of Christ was spilled for us. We pray that you would help us to live lives that are worthy of that. Live lives that are holy, that honor you in everything we say, think, do, react. God, would you forgive us? Forgive us for being lulled into sleep, lulled into a drunken stupor by the things of this world. Sober us up. Help us to honor you, to live holy lives in reverent fear because Jesus is worth it. God, we pray that as we do, that we would be ambassadors for you, that everywhere we go, every grocery store, every doctor's office, every meeting, every dorm room, every classroom, that wherever we are, Jesus would be honored and glorified so that in whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we would do all for your glory and for your name so that Jesus would be exalted so that more people would hear about who he is and and what he can do for them and what you desire to do in this world and can surrender to following you. God, would you do that through this church? We're your church. It's not our church. It's yours. So, Father, would you use it for your kingdom and your glory in the way you see fit, whether that's to be like the Moravians, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, whether it's to take the gospel across the street, Whatever it is that you're calling us to do, God, we ask that you would do it. You would strengthen us. That the lamb who was slain would receive the reward for his suffering. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.